Hello, and welcome back to Talking James Bond with Elijah. Now, before we reflect on You Only Live Twice, I want to start the At The Flicks team's audition for an older, classier James Bond. If you're a regular listener, you will know this idea was first mentioned in the last review show, when I said the next James Bond selection shouldn't be ageist. That prompted a lot of comment directed at the show. Yeah, mainly from listeners asking us to increase your meds, Jeff. Thank you, my very own Nurse Ratched. <laughs> Please put those electrodes down for a moment. The idea really did generate much comment, so much so that I thought we should treat this seriously. So, to take this idea to the next level, we have brought in an expert to adjudicate. Welcome to Graham Hills, the man who created the excellent advent calendar on Facebook for us, and in a couple of years, another possible contender for the older James Bond role. Hi Graham, how are you doing? Oh, very good, thanks Jeff, and uh, thank you for giving me the honour of judging this ongoing contest. And uh, yes, I thank you. I promise that briefcase stuff full of money you've just slipped me will in no way influence my decision. <laughs> right. My mission, and I have chosen to accept it, is to set up the various challenges over the next few months until we can select a winner to be put forward as a mature contender for the next James Bond. So will it be Mel Gibson fanboy Graham? <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, I can see who wrote this. Double O Dear Neil. <laughs> or the name's Bind. Jeff Bind. <laughs> that comes out on top for this one. All right. So today, just as in any beauty contest, hang on, that's not good. I'm feeling a little bit ill. Oh, where was I? Yes, I'm going to ask each one of you why each of you should be the chosen one and then set you two challenges. All clear? Neil, are you listening? <laughs> yes. <laughs> That's a first. <laughs> <laughs> Good. Okay, I will start then. Simple assignment to begin with. Please would each of you give me three reasons why you should be the next James Bond. And Jeff, I will start with you. Thank you. I uh, see so you start at the top and work down. Nice one, Graham. Um, quite simply, my initials are the closest to James Bond, JB, JD. I think that just naturally says it all. It's like an astrology chart, and nobody would trash those. Also, I'm Welsh, and the best James Bond ever was Welsh. Which one was that? Sir Timothy Dalton. Oh. Well, he, sh he should be Sir. Awesome. Cool. He was the Bond of the books. Stylish. Good with the one-liners. Good with the ladies. That's my youth right there. And <laughs> Graham, as you know, I've had loads of narrow escapes and scrapes <laughs> along the years, hanging from window ledges in New York, constantly getting lost when Satnav lets me down because the evil Blofeld has dabbled with it yet again. And yet I've always managed to come out on top. I know you said three, but I've got to add an extra one in. I am the only member of the At The Flicks team who's actually met a former James Bond. I met Roger Moore, who gave me a few tips on how to be a good James Bond, which I'll keep to myself for the moment. <laughs> That's my case, Graham. Thank you. Neil. In the first act, someone asks who, who he is, and he says, Bond, James Bond. Now, with an old person, we can say that, and the reaction will be not to shoot us, but to say, oh, yeah, like the spy. We're actually proper spies. We would fit in with the background. Now, I'm all for an older Bond, and there is a limit. Now, I could be a Bond, but the others, it's a stretch. Jeff and Graham definitely cannot be Bond, as I've said before, because of Q. Graham Bond goes in and goes, hi, Q. Q goes, ah, Bond. And Graham goes, well, that pen you left me last mission was incorrectly calibrated. Let me show you why. Now, Graham would never leave. Nothing would get done because Graham would still be talking at Q. Jeff Bond walks in and goes, hi, Q. And Q goes, ah, Bond. Now, I have this watch. And Jeff says, well, let me stop you there. Is it digital? I won't use digital. Q says, Okay, now you need to get to Marrakesh. The last mission we sent you to Tokyo and you ended up in Panama. Nope, Jeff 
you can't do that either. It's a ridiculous idea. Now, me, I go in there, and Q says, I've got this car. And Neil says, well, what does this do? And Q says, well, just read the manual. And I just drive off. See, it's exactly like Bond would do. There you go. I've got to be honest. I mean, that wasn't an addition for James Bond. That was an addition to be the next Jeremy Corbyn. (laughs) (laughs) Graham. So, gentlemen, what is Bond? He's dashing, well-dressed, well-travelled, and a man of mystery. I have all those qualities. If you were to put me in a tuxedo next to Daniel Craig in a pitch-black room with no light on, nobody would be able to tell the difference between the two of us. Apart from the foot shorter. (laughs) Yeah, you'd have to look down to see you. (laughs) I'm now getting heightish jokes from you, Neil. (laughs) Bloody hell. Right, brilliant. I'm still taller than Jeff. Well-travelled. Hey, that's me again. James and I are virtually travelling twins. Africa, Asia, Europe, the Americas. Strangely, Bond never went to Australia. And man of mystery. My entire life is a mystery. Why am I here? What am I doing? Nothing makes sense to me in my world. And finally, just to come back, I'm the only tech-savvy member of the team. I'm the only one who could actually work the gadgets from Q Division. Jeff struggles with the technical complexities of a ballpoint pen. That's why all these scripts are written in crayon. (laughs) Red crayon. So, dashing, well-dressed, well-traveled, man of mystery, right in front of you. I'm your man. Well, I can see this is going to be a long process. (laughs) (laughs) Right, let's move on to the challenges. I'm going to give you two perilous moments from Sean Connery, James Bond films, and you are going to give me your solution to these thorny problems. One caveat you cannot use the method that Sean Connery used to get out of these scrapes. So no re-watching the films to cheat, please. Jeff, I will start with you again for scenario one. (laughs) In Goldfinger, James Bond finds himself tied to a table as a laser beam gets ever closer to giving him a vasectomy. How would you get out of that soprano-inducing situation? That's a real challenge, that, Graham, and I've had to think long and hard about it. So what I do is I'm strapped to the table... And, you know, Goldfinger's laughing at me. I'd say to the nearest hunchman to the table, say, uh, excuse me, I can't die with my flies open. Could you do them up, please? So as he turns <laughs> round... <laughs> as he turns round to, to look, and, of course, another reason why I'd be Bond, because, you, you know, you have to have a big penis to be Bond. And <laughs> <laughs> he'd really? Be trying... <laughs> he'd got to be a big dick. well maybe you are bond he'd be transfixed (laughs) looking and of course the laser beam catch him in the back of the head he'd open his hand drop the keys i'd unlock myself grab his gun and shoot goldfinger there you go i'm out of there and goldfinger's dead no need to even get the fort (laughs) knock terrible graham please so this scene is in Switzerland, and it's at night, so it's a simple matter. You start shouting. The Swiss are very keen on peace and quiet in the evening. <laughs> You're not allowed to run a washing machine after 8 p.m. in Zurich, so all I would do is start screaming, and the super-efficient Swiss police would turn up in no time. Obviously, they would then ask Blofeld if he could kill me more quietly, as they're only concerned about the noise. But all I'd have to say is I think Herr Blofield is operating a death laser without a permit. And if you know anything about Swiss bureaucracy, no permit, no laser. I would then ask for the return of my trusty Walther PPK, made in Germany but used extensively by the Swiss police. Thank you, Wikipedia. And make sure I fitted the silencer. See, it's all about knowing the people you're dealing with. Can can I just add where you've gone horribly wrong with your plan? (laughs) Yes. It's this uh, scenario from Goldfinger, the one film Blofeld has no relation to whatsoever. <laughs> That's right. It's not Blofeld. It's freaking them. That's why he's called Goldfinger. Yeah. Goldfinger. Yeah. 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 You're not doing yourself any favours there, Graham. <laughs> um, Listen here, <laughs> Sonny. <laughs> right. 
Now, lazy beam getting closer to giving me a vasectomy. Look, we're old. Vasectomies don't really worry us. <laughs> um, look, I've been in this situation so many times. It's almost a cliche. And as a cliche, I'd ask the writers to remove the scene. Frankly, yeah. that is lazy writing. And it isn't interesting. <laughs> Brilliant. So, basically, I'd been cut in two. <laughs> <laughs> so... That's quite easy. I win that one, I think. Yeah. Well, yeah, it's up to Graham, really, isn't it? Some original answers there would have been nice. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've heard them all before, have you, Graham? <laughs> thank, thank you. Right, we better get on to scenario two. Um, you are fighting with an evil Swiss villain. Yes, another Swiss villain. Why are they always Swiss? <laughs> Well, they're all Swiss to Graham. Yeah. <laughs> and you both fall into their swimming pool, which contains four very hungry sharks. Why does every swimming pool in the Bond film have sharks in them? Anyway, let's not overthink this. How do you get out of this one? And this time, Neil, I'll start with you, please. Well, that watch I got from Q that I don't know how to work because I didn't bother reading the manual actually has a grappling hook. So easy, up and out, all off the wrist. Hang on, Neil. Neil, you might be good at getting one off at the wrist, but I think you've got this wrong. <laughs> well, Graham will still be talking to Q and Jeff will probably be somewhere in Cape Town, so it won't matter. So I didn't really think it matter how I got out there as long as I did. OK, Jeff. He's having a nap. Yeah. <laughs> right. Okay. So here I am fighting with this villain, big guy, but you know, he's English, so easy take him. And uh, we both fall in the pool. Four sharks coming towards us. Quite simply, I kick this guy towards two of the sharks. That's them out of the way. They'll rip him apart. And then I've got the other two. Now, I've got a mate called Bruce Wayne played by Adam West. And he had this thing in a documentary, bat shark repellent, and he lent me a can of it. So I would use the bat shark repellent, get them off, I'd get out, the guy's eaten, and I'm away. Right. (laughs) Hmm. I thought mine was bad. Graham, did did Adam West have bat shark repellent? Oh, yeah, he did. Yeah. 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 Excellent. Graham, please, your answer. Yeah, I know Emma from Bristol, the renowned shark lady of the Southwest. So as the sharks approach me, I just mention her name and the sharks would leave me alone. What are you going to do with the, the hunchman? Oh, just beat him up. He sees no problem. Throw him at the sharks. <laughs> so the sharks would eat him, but not you? Not me. Friend of Emma. She is the renowned shark lady of the Southwest. She is. That's true. Might work. <laughs> well, at the moment, I can't decide if they're all rubbish or all quite good answers. <laughs> Listeners, please tell us what you think. And please keep the swearing to a minimum. The next challenge, which will be on our Facebook page, are the portrait shots. Who of the three will look best as an aged Bond? Okay, Jeff, I did everything you asked. Can you please now destroy those photos of me wearing that Welsh rugby shirt? <laughs> yep, you, you go in the right way for that, Graham. Soon. Meanwhile, let's return to the regular programming as we bring on Elijah to talk You Only Live Twice. <laughs> Welcome to our continuing series of Rediscovering James Bond with Elijah. Tonight we're going to be talking You Only Live Twice. Welcome back, young man, over in a, I imagine, still cold America. How are you doing? We're doing fantastic. The snow is sort of, kind of melting, um, and our house is not frozen, so that's a good thing. That um, little rodent in Groundhog Day got it right this year, didn't he? Yeah, this one actually survived. Bill de Blasio didn't kill it, so, you know, it's a positive. Yeah, absolutely. So, we've now reached the fifth film in the series. Sean Connery stated this would be his last James Bond film. And for me, it was a first. Now, please indulge me, guys, for a moment. This is the first James Bond film I saw in the cinema. Now, I used to live in a place called Forest, near Pondicree, in South Wales. 
We used to have a small cinema a couple of streets away from where I lived called the Cecil. Amazingly, at nine years old that summer, I was allowed to go and watch this film on my own. Went down to the Cecil, settled in the seat and watched this amazing adventure unfold on screen. Now I'm telling you the story now because not only was that you know, my first introduction to Bond and I saw every other film since in the cinema, it remained my favourite Bond movie for many years. So going back to it now, thanks Elijah, has proven to be a very sobering experience as we shall discuss. That's enough from me at the moment. Elijah, what are your views on You Only Live Twice? It is another James Bond film in the Sean Connery run. Oh, nothing gets past you, does it, Elijah? Yeah, I know. It's just, <laughs> I didn't expect it going in, but it did turn out to be that way. So it was a, a pleasant surprise for the most part. I mean, it kind of doubles down on everything that you had in the past. I mean, bigger, better gadgets, bigger, better finale, but happens on an island. Most of the stuff is water. He's still, <laughs> every, every woman that touches him dies in horrible ways. It feels like the same, except that Sean Connery in this film appears to be less enthusiastic in the role. Bigger, but not necessarily better then. Yeah. Okay. Graham. Yeah, going back to it was quite an experience because for me, this was, after Goldfinger, the, the film that I remembered the most from going to the cinema and seeing it. Very young child, completely blew me away. And I always remember the volcano scene from then. So it made a huge impression watching it last week. was quite depressing, really, because yeah. I... You know, there were lots of holes in it there, you know, and looking at it with older eyes, it was just, it was, it was something else. Thank you. Uh, Speaking of depressing, Neil, your views. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for that. Um, Yeah, similar, similar to the guys. It was um, interesting how I just, yeah, didn't quite float my boat, really. Connery looks bored. He's still professional, to be fair. Um, the cinematography looks good. John Barry's score with a bit of Japanese music mixed with the, the Western theme. Accuse in a, gets a role, Little Nelly, and that's it, really. Little Nelly, we'll talk about later. That was, mm. uh, that, that was fascinating. And certainly, again, it's almost like the Little Nelly sequence was designed to sell the film because it has the Bond music underneath of it. And, you know, it's all that nonstop action. That really sold it to me before I saw it. That was probably the reason why I wanted to see it at that age. Yeah, I was disappointed as well. One of the big differences this time around is different directors and writers. So they brought in Lewis Gilbert. Now, Lewis Gilbert was on a high at this time. He had just directed the hit movie Alfie starring Michael Caine. And he'd made a number of these sort of kitchen sink dramas. I think the biggest thing he directed to date was Sink the Bismarck. And then they also brought in different writer. And I'll talk about the writer in a minute because he is fairly well known for other things. But let's continue on with the director. Do you think, uh, Graham, I'll throw it at you first, he was a good choice for director or did you feel that that material got away from him? I thought he was okay. Young Graham, when he saw it at nine years old, however old I was when I saw it, it didn't register. But going back and looking at it with fresh eyes last week, I thought he did a very workmanlike job. The big action scenes work well. The direction is fine. He managed to get something out of Connery because Connery was really pissed off on set. So, well, wouldn't you be if you had a photographer sneak in and take pictures when you're sitting on the toilet? <laughs> uh, yeah, that would probably dampen my day. It doesn't happen to be often. But yeah, looking at it, the direction is solid. It's not bad at all. Okay. Elijah? I think the direction is fine. Definitely the the way that they handle the sets and the production is excellent. Production the overall design. look of the film is, is great, mm. and it, it moves along at a decent pace. Yeah, I wouldn't say I'd, I noticed anything particular about the directing that stood out. For me, it looked like he, he struggled a bit, but that may also come into the, the writing element. I mean, Roald Dahl threw out the whole of You Only Live Twice, the book, give his 
sort of take on it and he came up with a lot of the ideas and a lot of the characters and I know you're a bit of a Roald Dahl fan there Neil so do you think he did a good job with the script? As I understand it did he take out a lot of the misogyny and all that sort of stuff? Yeah he missed a bit then (laughs) (laughs) Yeah some rather large bits Yeah exactly So, uh, yes, okay, yes, that's a reasonable comment, and I'd forgotten about that. But, yes, he did, uh, he changed it around, and uh, I don't know. I mean, you're fighting against the producers who insist on this happening, this happening, this happening, and and keeping the um, series of films going, and being able to create a film uh, would have been an interesting job for Royal Dahl. I mean, no other book after this is really straight into film are they 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 basically Ooh, rip careful. them to bits don't careful. they oh well i suppose on the majesty secret, secret service, service. It's pretty is pretty much the book that is uh, the, the film that is most like the book which probably did make sure make them realize that they did have to change them but yeah um yeah so it's i suppose he did okay he didn't get to talk about any jews so that's a good thing oh you beat me to it the anti-semitic remark and roll down <laughs> yeah one reason they did not use the book is because it's set after on Her Majesty's Secret Service ah. uh, and has Bond on the revenge trail for Blofeld. This was the first indication that later films were going to differ greatly from the source material. In your opinion, Elijah, is that a good or a bad thing? It depends on how well it works in the films that they've filmed. I mean, they've made. So my tack whenever it comes to adaptation is either you adapt it to where it follows the book and it makes sense on screen, or you just take the characters and you make it make sense on screen. Like what they do with the Marvel cinematic universe or the DCU, things like that. Hmm. That's a good comparison. Actually. Yes. Where they just take, this is the character and sort of his story arc. And then they just make it very cinematic. Yeah. But up to this point, every book, you know, from Dr. No, from Russia with love, Goldfinger and Thunderball were all close to their source novels. This just throws it up in the air. He's bigger than life. Facing a thousand deaths. And you only live twice. And twice is the only way to live. We're too late. Well, at least he died on the job. What about some of the dialogue, Elijah? Uh, I give you very best duck and... I love the plumbing could almost almost be considered sexist. <laughs> almost, almost. I, I wrote it, so yes. Yeah, I I don't think that those lines themselves are sexist. When when she's talking about the very best duck, he's talking about the differences between how Chinese women taste from other women <laughs> sexually. Yeah. So I think we're running into kind of a sexist and a racist thing. Mm. Well, yes, semi-racist, like, oh. maybe not. Yes, <sighs> it was all the all to do with Peking Duck, wasn't it? And, yeah, uh, yeah. And, and and when he dies, then the the guy comes in and said, "At least he died on the job." Yeah. Good <laughs> gosh. Yeah. yeah. Some yeah. of them are excruciating, aren't they? Yeah, some of them are as subtle as a brick. Yeah. I mean, yeah, the, for all the the Chinese culture that we get in this film, yeah, I mean, we get way more Japanese culture. But at this point, it's she, he's in China. Yeah, he's in mm. Hong Kong. Uh, and China's the big bad in the movie. Well, yeah. behind the big bad. No, yeah, absolutely. As it was in Goldfinger. Yes. Mm-hmm. They'll never do that now. <laughs> no, because no. it can sell to them. There's a thing that came out on CBS this morning, I think yesterday or the day before, on all the stuff that Hollywood does now to make them appeal to China, even if they don't get over in China. Uh, they are trying very hard to sell absolutely everything. Yeah. 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 With Milan, though. Didn't uh, that didn't take off there last year? No, it didn't because they penalized them for the American response to the uh, the actress. What did the actress say? Uh, speak out against the uprising in Hong Kong, and then the fact that they were thinking the CCP in uh, was it Xinjiang? Yep, for Shanghai. where they're committing the genocide. That's not going to win you any friends, is it? What I mean, the BBC I- came out with a report on that that was absolutely horrific. Oh, it's, it is. It's shocking. It is absolutely unbelievable. Coming back to Bond, uh, one thing that was like the book is the um, Japanese setting. I mean, Japan in the 1960s was an amazing place. Uh, It was just starting to open up and influencing Western culture. The Olympics were there in in 64. 
industrialization and innovation had made it into a world leader. Western pop acts like the Beatles performed there in the mid-60s. And now we have Bond filming there. Does any of this vibrancy come across on screen for you, Elijah? You get the sense that they're, you know, really technically advanced because the the Japanese Secret Service do all this really cool technologically advanced stuff, at least for the era. That's entertaining. But I mean it doesn't look as nearly as advanced as Japan today. Oh no. no. Yeah. But not only that, you had the Americans who had been there since you know, since World War Two and they had the bases there. Yes, Japan was advancing in its culture, but it was also fusing with what was there, you know, what was in America as well. Mm-hmm. To to me, that definitely come across on screen. Do we, do we know if Japan contributed to the financing? Because some of it looks like a travelogue. A lot of it looks like a travelogue. Yes, lots of temples and uh, yeah, yeah. And this is the marriage service. This is how we do this service, and uh, you know the tea and the and such like. Did, don't you don't... think some of it was draconian though? But if you're speeding, I would not want my car picked up and dropped in the harbour. I'm sorry, <laughs> I think that is excessive. Yeah. Well, don't you think that, that that was just such a such a subtle way? To, to to take out the bad guys, you know? Yeah, because nobody, nobody in Tokyo would have noticed it, would they? No, four people <laughs> hanging out of a car screaming as it went out. Helicopters picked up vehicles off the off the highway all the time <laughs> and dropped them in the harbour. So I'm, yeah, I'm sure that was just an everyday occurrence. People in the harbour <laughs> clapping. Oh, yes, well done. It's it's really good for uh, sea life because they can feed off the corpses you can create reefs on the vehicle. I mean, it's just, you know, it's a win-win all around. It's um, very green. It's, well, yeah. One of the problems they had there was when Ken Adam was out there, and we'll talk a bit about Ken Adam shortly, but he did the production design, and they filmed part of it over in Japan, and they filmed part of it in Pinewood. So they used these materials for offices and the outline which with Japanese wood. And, of course, when they come back to the UK, they couldn't recreate it. And in the end, the way they got round it was uh, a company that actually salvaged things off beaches, got them the stuff they needed. No questions asked. Really? Yeah, yeah. It's a very strange story. Mm. For legal reasons, I can't go into on the podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Let's turn to acting. I mean, Sean Connery was not happy during filming, and indeed stopped acting whenever the producers appeared on set. He was to leave the series briefly after this movie. Do you think this impacted on the portrayal of James Bond? I mean, he didn't have any life. He felt very kind of blasé and, you know, he was there to deliver his lines. You know, in the other James Bond films, he's very snappy. You can see that he's having fun, that he's enjoying the character. And then this is just like, okay, let's do this take and give me a paycheck. And that's an interesting point. And as you, you said earlier, he was going through the motions. But also, you know, he was the most experienced person there. You know, he'd been there from the very beginning. He'd been trained by Terence Young on how to portray Bond. Lewis Gilbert came in, not used to making this sort of film. Crew around him weren't used to making this sort of film. So Connery could get away with pretty much what he wanted. And I, I go back to the director, and I don't think Connery was directed well in this film. I mean, that's probably right. It seems like he's he he just has no passion for the role anymore, and maybe he would have had if he had a different director, a director he knew better and who knew the material better. But but I think the director did an okay job. I mean, because he was really badly pissed off, and he actually got you know some of the scenes are not bad. I mean, there are a lot of scenes where you can think, yeah, and I like that phrase that Elijah just used. It doesn't seem so sort of immediate. Or, or, or to be happy in the role anymore, and he's going through the motions. But mm. yeah, he certainly lost the um, the d- dynamism that yeah. was in um, Goldfinger. It's not snappy, yeah. is it? That's right. Yeah. I just said. Yeah. yeah. Well, let me tell you a little story then about Sean Connery on this set. I said earlier he was photographed when he was on the toilet by some of the press, and he really lost it. Quite rightly, they got fed up wherever he went. The Japanese loved James Bond and they were sort of following them around and there were big queues. So he couldn't get away from anything. Everybody's uh, taking photos of him. So they hired this special guard, 16 guards they hired to make sure that nobody could get to Sean Connery and would take pictures. 
Lewis Gilbert, as director, thought it'd be really funny the, the day that they hired those 16 guards, that when Connery arrived on the set, he gets out of the car, and there's a guard. Eight of those guys either side, and Connery had to walk down. And as he started walking down, the joke was they all took out cameras and started taking pictures of him. <laughs> so, oh, no. Yeah, filming was suspended that day and uh, continued the day after. Did he say, oh, dearie me? Apparently, he did his best, broadest Mel Gibson and uh, stormed off. Really? Bloody hell. So let's have a look at... They can take everything, but they can never take my photograph. Or Russell Crowe on a cell phone. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, so look at the rest of the cast, and I, we'll put Donald Pleasance to one side. So I want to talk about Blofeld separately. Does anybody else make an impression? And I appreciate the dubbing experts who you can't see made a fortune out of this film. But <laughs> does any of the other actors make any impression? Neil, I thought it was nice to see um, Desmond Llewellyn and Lewis Maxwell and Bernard Lee again, but they they do exactly what they were doing before. Charles Gray, of course, nice to see him in a Bond film for the first time. And not the last. And not the last, obviously. Otherwise, Tetsuro Tambo was was, um, was fine. Was he dubbed? Um, yes, he was. Although he was the one who could speak English the most in the, of the Japanese cast. Which is a shame, really, isn't it? Other than that, not really. Vic Armstrong was a ninja. He's got a future role and such like in Bond, isn't he? What about you, Elijah? Anybody make an impression outside of, and uh, I say I'll put Pleasance to one side. Everyone else felt like they were another Bond character. Mm. The same henchmen that we've seen before, the same Bond girls that we've seen before, the same contact that Tanaka basically is. is you know, it's just like in uh, From Russia with Love and that you're in contact with in the, in the main country that takes you around and does things with you. And I mean, the, all the actors did fine, but their characters weren't really all that much. By the way, do you remember that sequence where he has the fight with the big henchman guy in the beginning when they believe he's unconscious or wounded and he starts having this huge fight involving a sofa around the, around the room? Mm. Oh, yeah. 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 That actor stroke stuntman that he was fighting with is Dwayne Johnson's grandfather. No. Really? Yeah. Ah. <laughs> that explains some things. Well done, jo- Jeff. Well found. Graham, let's talk about villains then. It's one hour, 38 minutes into the film. I timed it before we finally get to see the face of Blofeld. James Bond, allow me to introduce myself. I am Ernst Stavro Blofeld. They told me you were assassinated in Hong Kong. Yes, this is my second life. You only live twice, Mr. Bond. And it's Donald Pleasance with a scar. Well, actually, it, it, it was a special glue they used on his face, which bruised the hell out of it. But, you know, it, it was pretty good, and he put up with it. What are your thoughts on his performance, and particularly that of his cat, which I'm going to talk about in a moment? <laughs> well, I can remember being a kid and thinking, oh, he's really evil. Look, he's got a cat. He's got a scar. Well, that, that, that immediately makes him evil. I thought his performance was fine. And I do know the story of the cat. I'll share this now then. So, yeah, the cat, uh, and I didn't notice it until I was going through the commentary track and it was pointed out. There is a moment towards the end where that cat is positively terrified and it's desperately trying to get out of the arms of Donald Pleasance and he's holding it. He's physically (laughs) tight, got this thing tight to not let it go. And in the end, it did get out. And when he fired the gun, it scared it so much. It it went up in the rafters and it took three days to get this cat back. (laughs) So so, the problems then really started because the cat wrangler who made his career out of this particular animal, apparently it had been the star of a whole series of carpeting commercials in Britain in the mid 60s. And it generated a fair bit of income for this guy. The problem was the cat was so traumatized after its involvement on the You Only Live <laughs> Sorry, Twice I shouldn't set laugh. <laughs> that uh, it would never go on a film set again. The cat wrangler then sued Eon Productions for loss of earnings because of his cat. Brilliant. So, but yeah. yeah Elijah, what do you think of Donald Presence and said cat? Uh, he is villainous. 
Yeah, I had the same thing. I was thinking, God, no, come on, I know what's going to happen. Ah, Donald Pleasance, here we go. And I, I sort of started, started sort of in, really enjoying the film again after that. I thought, um, yeah, it was uh, it was a uh, nice nice to see him again. Problem is, he's very civilized. He should have had his like henchman work bond over. That's for Doctor No. <laughs> that's that's for for Rosa Kleb, and just really beat him up. You know, for all the other things he's thwarted him on. He had to yeah. escape though, didn't he? Because yeah. of the uh, sorry, tr- spoiler alert. He had to escape because he's <laughs> uh, comes comes back, of course. Uh, yes, he comes back. We'll talk about that in a moment. Elijah, the big thing of this film, the thing that still stands up today, it was awe-inspiring when I saw it as a child, and it's still fantastic. Ken Adams sets. I mean, that volcano cost more than the entire production of Dr. No. What did you think? I think it looks excellent. The whole set and the design of the little vehicles on the rails, the spaceship, heck, even the... um the space sequences were excellent. Yes. I, I Those looked admit, really yeah. good. Yes. Even today, I thought they were quite good. And, and, and factoring in, in fact, the space sequences were better than the rear projection stuff when they were in cars. <laughs> they did huge night shooting on those sets, to, so much so that the people around in the villages around Pinewood got really cross and they give them an open day where they could wander around the set to show them what they've been doing. <laughs> I mean... What an experience that must have been! Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, your your thoughts on it, Neil? Yeah, I mean the whole volcano thing, the whole all of Japan and everything. They obviously this whole thing looks more expensive, doesn't it? And uh, and what he did on this, absolutely fantastic, magnificent, almost better than everything else in the film. It certainly stands out. I mean, even the rocket. Okay, it was on wires. But the the, the rocket, full-size rocket, lifted out of that set. The first time it sort of opens up and swallows the American space um, whatever, where it snaps off the um, the cord for the for the other the guy. Cord, yeah, that was. Whoa, I'd forgotten about that bit. And the probably whole thing. the worst death in the whole film. Mm. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. It is absolutely astonishing. So, Elijah, we've got to talk about the music. And what really stands out, I think it's one of John Barry's best scores. I know Nancy Sinatra struggled with the title song. The actual finished article comes from bits from 25 different takes that were made because she she struggled so much. They actually wanted Frank Sinatra to sing the main title, but he said uh, no. So they went for his daughter. And one for your dreams. I think you know the song is good, but such tracks like Mountains and Sunset when the Japanese fishing boats are all setting off. I mean, you know, we talk about Connery owning Bond, but I ask you, Elijah, do you think Barry owned Bond at this stage? I mean, Barry's score is absolutely fantastic. It's it's probably the best character in the film. Yeah, good point. Even though everything else is kind of just going places, the score makes you feel like it's something's happening with uh, the set and the the sets and the uh, the score. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. You, you made a good point earlier, Neil, when you said that Barry had also incorporated little bits of Japanese music, mm. maybe Japanese instruments, into it. Yeah, yeah. He he sort of dragged the two together, which is which is quite a feat, really. It still has to sound like Bond theme. Um, because everything has to sound or look like a Bond film. But he'd actually introduced a whole load of the, the Japanese music as well. It's quite extraordinary. Yeah. There's a sequence, which I think outside the volcano is one of the best sequences in the film, which is the Kobe Dock sequence, where the camera pulls up and you see Connery running 
to, to different places trying to escape, you know, beautifully timed uh, piece of mm. action choreography. But Barry's score at that point also is excellent. Jeff, was Barry much more relaxed writing now? Because he got, he got the entire gig to himself, all the legal problems they had over the bond. Yeah, yeah. Were, he, he, were over now and he could really just concentrate on doing his own thing. Yeah, but, but also at this time, I mean, he's turning out scores like this, Born Free, Lying in Winter. So, you know, he's just a man in total control at that point in time. On a roll. And the variety between the scores, too. It's amazing. You know, Lying in Winter, which we've spoken about in an earlier episode, the way he put that music together with the vo- the vocal arrangements as well, it's just astonishing. I don't think there was anybody at that time, any composer that was uh, around at that time could match Barry. You had people like, uh, I would say, Henry Mancini, but he had his own niche. Goldsmith was still up and coming. John Williams was still up and coming. Uh, I think Barry owned it. Your thoughts, Graham, on the score? I, I loved it. I, I really did. Uh, I mean, I didn't notice it when I was a kid, and it was just wonderful. And, and you actually... Stole my thunder there. It was the uh, fishing boats going out mm. uh, that I thought, oh, that's really nice. <laughs> yeah, yeah, mountains and sunsets. It's, uh, yeah, and uh, really quite spectacular. But one of the other things with uh, this film is when people think back of Bond in the 60s, this is the one that comes to mind. So, for example, you've got Austin Powers with Dr. Evil. <laughs> you've got... You know, little Nelly and that sequence, the exotic locations, the cheesy dialogue. You know, it, it comes through in so many films. Elijah, I think you said in the past, also in The Incredibles. Like, yeah, The Incredibles, mm-hmm. the whole No Man is an Island. Yeah. yeah, That's yeah. all this. Yes. I mean, from the vehicles that they have to the the rocket. God, it to is, the, isn't it? Yeah. And even the score. Even the <laughs> score is this. Yeah, yeah, and the fact that yeah, in in that film he lives under a volcano as well. Yeah, yes. yeah, yeah, absolutely. And the, the yeah, bloody hell, I'm going to have to watch it again now. I mean, they probably got some of their texture designs from the film. Mm. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to watch it again now. Damn it, it's just <laughs> ruined the whole of the Incredibles for me. It's just a copy, <laughs> an homage, an homage, an homage. Yeah, okay, I'll call so you it say an homage it with a and... French word, and it sounds fancy, so it's not as bad as a copy. So sounds fine then, doesn't it? For some reason, this has become you know the strongest in the memory of all of them, and it's going back to it. It's not the best, no. but it's the one that's been copied the most. Iconic, isn't it? And then the, the, as soon as you see the volcano, you go, ah, Bond, right, got it. Yeah, I, yeah, I think it's because all of the biggest set pieces in the series are in this up until now. Hmm. Yeah. Like the spaceship scenes, which are incredible. The volcano set, which is awesome. The massive fight scene at the end that makes the uh, fight in the last film underwater look like it was a bunch of kindergartners in slow-mo. Yes. Yeah. Um, the whole thing is just taken up to the nines. So even though Connery's performance isn't that great, and the story is kind of, you know, it's it's present. The set pieces and that thing, you know, when you're watching it as a kid, you think the set pieces, not the story. Exactly. Yes. Yeah, yeah, I think that that's true. How, you know, we want this volcano, we want stuff in space, we want this big action. How we get there, we don't care. Yeah. yeah. And here's <laughs> a load of money. Yeah. 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 The Christopher Nolan way of filmmaking. Yes. Exactly. Yeah. Except he's, he writes better stories. Yeah. Other than yes. Tenant. Um... I just watched that this morning. It's fantastic. <laughs> Love it. It is fantastic. There we go. There's whole loads of stuff about um, oh, how it's if... made and what it, what it's about and everything. But go on. It, oh, that I, that I haven't got the time to discuss that. But Elijah, we'll come back to that. Uh... <laughs> Ultimately, what moments in the film stood out for you, Elijah? I'm going to say the big, uh, the big fight scene at the end. Mm. Just the fact that there are so many things going on. I mean, people are repelling down and Bond is having to open up the thing for people to get out because they're getting mowed down by machine guns. And then people are throwing grenades and going up multiple levels. It's just insane. Everything and came it's awesome. to that, didn't it? It was, it was the whole, all the money, everything. It was fantastic. It really was, wasn't it? Graham? Oh, little Nelly. The oh, really? 
I mean, it's a gadget. It arrives in a couple of bags. They put it together, and then he's off. Yeah. And it, it's exactly the same as the Bond car, but now it can fly. Hello, base one. Listening. Little Nelly got a hot reception. Four big shots made improper advances towards her, but she defended her honor with great success. Heading for home. Yeah, yeah. yeah no, I started head. laughing at that oh, point. Yeah, <laughs> the first time the we the world, as far as I know, when I was a kid, I heard the phrase gyrocopter. You know, we'd not got, and it, it was just wonderful, and it takes out. Of four helicopters with ease, you know, it was great. Mm, realistic. There is a bit where his arm disappears because it's um it it it's got it's lost in the green screen. But yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh, sorry, sorry, I started laughing at that point. Jeff, I just pick up that point on the uh, on Little Nelly, which is a standout point. It, it's almost a little Bond film within itself by using mm, the original is, Bond yeah. theme. Uh, the guy who created the gyrocopter. Uh, who's retired Air Force, and uh, he worked with them on you know what they felt they could put on. And but the one thing that didn't work when they fired all the rockets together, he said no, that would have just brought it out of the sky. The force of that would have brought that straight down. Hmm. Oh, a bit realistic about it. Just some interesting facts. David Lean spent a day on set. Freddie Francis was the cameraman who was Lean's go-to uh, cameraman, and. Yeah. Uh, he uh, asked, could he come on for an hour? He ended up spending the whole day. No one, when they were filming, spotted the mistake that Charles Gray made when he said, you like your drink stirred, not shaken. Ha! Which I noticed. Did he actually say that, did you? But there was so much dubbing in this film. Why didn't they just dub that in? <laughs> At the very end of the film, of course, you've got that awful reverse shot of the submarine coming up with the boat on top of it. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And the reason they had to do that is they tried to do it the right way around, but every time the submarine came up, it pushed the boat away. Yes. So they had to do it in reverse in the end. Was that a real submarine? I thought it was a model. Yes. No, it was a real submarine. And they just dropped below it and then reversed it. It earned less money than Thunderball. Why do you think it didn't prove a successful worldwide? Is it because maybe nothing was set in America or there's refusal to watch something that was in Jap Japan after World War II. It was only 22 years after. Or was it just becoming too much the same? We'll start with Jeff on that one. I, I think it's a combination of the hatred there was for Japanese people, particularly from people who've been in Japanese prisoner of war camp and their family, both in yeah. Britain and America. Yeah, no, you know, I'm, people, I'm with you on that one. Yeah, they would not have wanted to have watched anything set in Japan and certainly where the Japanese people are seen as heroes. And I think it was a little bit too much of becoming the same at that point. I think it might have turned a few people off. The reviews weren't great on this film when it first came out. It stood the test of time, you know, regardless of everything we're saying about it, it stood the test of time so that, you know, it's the film now that has the most influence on our culture from any Bond film of the 60s. Mm, true. Elijah? Yeah, I mean, there wasn't a whole lot of love lost between Americans and Japanese at that point, I imagine, especially with things heating up in Vietnam. Yeah, it's probably just a big uh, confluence of things. Yeah, my, I mean, my next-door neighbour when I was growing up was a survivor of a Japanese prisoner war camp. He had no time for him. No, my dad dad's, uh, worked with somebody who um, was in their Japanese prisoner war camp and he never spoke about it, wouldn't speak to it about, about it with anybody, even his wife. Just to take a slightly different turn, I wonder, was it because this wasn't... This was more action-adventure and less spy than the previous ones. You know, this was more... It was really boys on adventure stuff. You know, the other ones, particularly from Russia with Love, was more of a, a spy drama or thriller. Um, and this was just all out action uh, and running around a lot. Maybe people just said, well, there's, not, there's nothing in it but a load of action sequences. It is possible that it's a lack of non-Asian love interests. Yeah, I mean, there was this is also the bad press coming back from it because obviously we've been reporting back that uh, Sh Sean Connery was uh, hacked off with it, I suppose. So uh, pre uh, the film coming out wouldn't have been a um, particularly uplifting story, would it? 
Yeah, there was a famous Wicker's World episode where he said he wasn't going to do any more. Mm. When the, we, Alan Wicker was on set. I mean, it could also be franchise fatigue. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's a good point. So, any final thoughts? Uh, Elijah. You know, it's definitely worth a watch. It's it's entertaining. Hmm. And the set pieces are awesome. And if you want to see where in the, uh, uh, the best animated film of all time got their uh, inspiration it's right there yes yes and then think of every think of every film you can think of including the incredibles which you've now ruined for me and then try and work out where they got that from that bond yeah yeah you're welcome neil i'm glad i could give that gift to you (laughs) yeah 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 thanks graham it's not as great as when i first saw it 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 has actually um gone down in my estimation but it's still up there it's still a great adventure story uh, you know and it's a very bondy bond all the terrible misogyny and shocking one-liners yeah it's it is very bond yes jeff oh to see it as i saw it you know when i was nine years old with that optimism and when i was the same height as graham is now um, <laughs> <laughs> he keeps making these height jokes, knowing that I'm taller than him. I just got <laughs> yeah. So I think that part of it, but otherwise, yeah, I do. It's great fun. The set pieces are fantastic. Yes. Well, the, the, the final act is excellent, isn't it? Really? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So, thank you all for another fascinating discussion uh, on James Bond and at the flicks will, as they say, return this time with a new actor playing James Bond. Guys, thank you very much. Bye.